You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Redemption Hill Church. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Um, I haven't preached in four weeks. Just had a couple other people preaching. We had our our part-time last week, uh, which was a blast. But it's great to be back in this new sermon series. So, as you can tell, we've um, kind of moved out of Galatians, now we're doing a new sermon series. So, for the next three weeks, we'll be looking at specific areas in the church where the grace of God is at work. In particular, we'll be looking at baptism, that's what we'll we'll look at next week, Uh, the Lord's Supper, which is this morning, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are all a means of grace for the church. So we want to allow, we want to see all these areas in the church. We also want to be aware why we practice these two sacraments and why we want to experience the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit through uh, the spiritual gifts. So let me give you a little insight into the the creation of this particular sermon series. Um, It's kind of a a happy accident. Uh, Last winter, you might remember, I went through our Foundations sermon series. Kind of what are the theological foundations of this church plant, Redemption Hill Church. And I actually stopped it short um, so that I can get into the book of Galatians January, right, right in the beginning of January. And um, one of the sermons, one of the, me- one of the messages I didn't preach, but I knew I was going to preach in 2019, is uh, the message on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So I knew I had to get that. And then a little bit after that, I, I knew I wanted to do um, a couple messages on baptism and the Lord's table. So here's where the happy accident happened. I happened to be reading this book called Spirit and Sacraments, which is where we get the the title of this sermon series. And the author was talking about how these three areas come together are a means of grace for the local church. So he was looking at the two sacraments that we practice here. He was looking at the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And there was just this confluence of these topics. And so that's kind of the, uh, the evolution, as it were, of this particular sermon series, and that's what we'll be focusing on. The bottom line is this. As a local church, we want to receive all that God has for us. We want to receive all that He has for us. God has given us the sacraments. He has given us the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we want to see from God's Word, from the Bible, once again, week in, week out, this is where we go, We want to see from the Bible what it means to see these avenues of grace expressed. What does it mean to express these things? Like, when we do communion, we've been doing this week in and week, why do we do this? Why do we baptize? Why do we hold the positions that we do about the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Um, I want us to know, and I want us to see from God's Word, uh, why we believe what we believe. So like I said, this morning we'll be looking at the Lord's table. Uh, we also call it the Lord's Supper or communion. I've used that language. As far as I'm concerned, all these labels are, are quite acceptable. Um, now, full disclosure, there's probably a better way to order this sermon series. Um, probably could have started with baptism and then the Lord's Supper for some very theological and I think obvious reasons. But, I, but I'm beginning with the Lord's table because we've actually been partaking in this since the first Sunday we began to meet as a church plant. And I want you all to know why we partake in the Lord's table every Sunday. So I was actually quite eager to get to this topic. 
So let me begin with this. Throughout the history of the church, now, if you don't know me, I love church history. It's my thing, so I'm not going to get all teacher on y'all, but I got some church history for you, because there's actually, it's actually quite significant. So throughout the history of the church, few issues have divided churches, denominations, and friends than how the Lord's table is understood. I mean, like, in, in 1054, we had a massive split in the church. The people in the East, the Eastern Orthodox Church, split from uh, the Roman Catholics, in part, for many reasons, but in part because of this particular issue. Do you have leaven in your bread when you practice communion? Well, one side didn't, the other side did, and all of a sudden it's like, we're going to go this way. And they split over it. In the 16th century, um, think Reformation. The Reformers all agreed on this. We don't agree with the Catholics. The Reformers, however, disagreed with each other on this issue. They're like, nah, we don't quite agree with you. You don't agree. Here's, here's one of my favorite stories that I've, that I've heard about church history. One of my absolute favorite stories. In October of 1529, a debate about the nature of the Lord's table took place between some big-name reformers. I mean, I'm talking about the goats of the reformers. In one corner, we got this German Martin Luther. In the other corner, we got this Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli. And they both got their, their friends with them. And the previously, these two guys, Zwingli and Luther, they'd be writing to each other about the topic of the Lord's table. And Luther's given his position. And then Zwingli's like, no, I don't agree with you. So Zwingli writes back. And all of a sudden, the tension's beginning to build through their letters. You can read them. You can be like, ooh, it's getting hot. They don't like each other. What's going on here? So someone comes up with this great idea. And they're like, hey, why don't we just talk it out? Makes sense, right? I mean, if you keep texting someone back and forth, and all of a sudden there's like this misunderstanding, what do you do? You know, pick up the phone and say, hey, we're going to meet at Starbucks, we're going we're gonna to talk this through. And so they did, at least they tried. They got together uh, in Malburg, Germany, at the Malburg Castle in Germany, excuse me. And the story kind of goes like this. Everyone has showed up to this debate, but Martin Luther. And everyone's waiting. And what do you do in the 16th century when someone hasn't arrived? What do you, you continue to wait. You can't text message. You're not going to phone call. You just wait. And they waited. And then Martin Luther comes in. He goes to the table, books on the table. And this is how the story was told to me, and I'm handing it down to you. Martin Luther approaches the table, takes all the books, throws it off the table. Books go crashing to the ground. Martin Luther takes a piece of chalk and he writes on the table these words in Latin, hoc est corpus meum, which means, this is my body. Oh, to be able to witness that scene. Here's the point that the, at least at this time, I think the petulant Martin Luther was trying to make. While he disagreed with the Catholic Church and how the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ, he still believed there was a physical presence of Jesus in the communion elements. Others, like Zwingli and his friends, disagreed with Luther. So the debate raged, and what should have been friends became enemies because of their sharp disagreement. 
without an iPhone to record the event, I'm sure some of the, some of the story is legend. However, the debate was fierce and it created divisions. Good men disagreed. However, their disagreement does show, at least historically at this point, the importance of the Lord's table. They didn't squabble over this, over this as a trivial matter. So one of my goals this morning is to explain why the Lord's table should not be a trivial matter for us. Instead, we need to participate in the Lord's table with a mixture of reverence and joy reflection and renewed faith with remembrance and expectation. And of course, we look to God's word to help us understand the nature of the Lord's table along with how we need to approach the Lord's table every single Sunday that we gather. So in light of historical evidence of division and frankly current debate, here's my, one of my pleads um, because the debate does rage and issues like this and others where there's sharp theological divide, grace must abound. Right? Grace must abound. Doesn't mean you can't hold strongly an opinion, which I surely do, especially when it comes to the Lord's Supper. But grace must abound. Good people who love Jesus will disagree with me and I with them. But grace must abound. So now to our text. We read in Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29, Jesus giving instructions at the first communion table. The other gospel writers, Mark, Luke, and John, also provide an account of Jesus celebrating communion for the first time. What I find fascinating about Matthew's account is what is written right before and after this celebration, this communion table. We've read it right before. Right before Jesus celebrates communion, so we're talking verses 17 to 25, which Aaron read. He tells his disciples that one of them is going to betray him. We all know that man to be Judas. Jesus knew it was going to be Judas. Judas knew it was going to be Judas. However, everyone else in the room, while they were relaxing and eating together, would have been shocked by the prophetic words of Jesus. Here, here is a redacted version of the passage with just the dialogue between Jesus and his disciples. So Jesus says in verse 21, Truly I say to you, one of you, one of you guys hanging out with me, eating with me, who've been walking with me, fellowshipping with me, one of you is going to betray me. And then the 11 disciples respond, Is it I, Lord? You know, with the question, Notice the difference in Judas's response. Is it I, Rabbi? In the exchange, we see the difference between Judas and the other 11 disciples. As you, as you just saw and read, the other 11 disciples responded by calling Jesus Lord, while Jesus, by Judas called Jesus Rabbi, which also means teacher. Now think, Judas was a man who walked with Jesus. He witnessed the miracles of Jesus. He heard the teachings of Jesus. Judas saw lives changed because of the ministry of Jesus. Yet he never truly believed Jesus was the Son of God. You serious? 
He never believed Jesus was Lord. Perhaps he thought he was a good teacher, but never the Son of God. Jesus even says to Judas, without calling him out by name, at least not yet, Woe to that man to whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now imagine someone else, someone saying that to you. I wish you were never born. These are strong words of judgment by Jesus against Judas. As I was pondering these strong words from our Lord, I asked myself this question. What is the difference between Judas and me? You know, we can come to this passage and write off Judas as a maniac who was bent on his greed. After all, he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, 600 U.S. dollars, We can look at Judas and say, I would never do that. However, here's the truth. And I'll speak for myself. I'm a lot like Judas. Here's the only difference between Judas and me. Faith. Faith. Despite my sin... God gave me, and many of you, faith to believe Jesus is Lord. Without faith, you are precisely like Judas. The story of Judas should be sobering for for us. It should cause us to see the depths of our sin, because in a sense, like I said, we're all like Judas. However, we can also rejoice, because God has given us the faith to see that Jesus is Lord. Therefore, we don't just call Jesus teacher, but we also call him Lord and Savior. That should put your your own faith in perspective, right? And it should cause you to rejoice and thank God for who he is and his grace and mercy and love extended toward you. There's a a greater theological emphasis at work in verses 17 to 25. God's sovereignty is at work along with Judas' responsibility. Jesus knew he was on mission to die on the cross for the sin of his people. Jesus said, just as it is written, the death of Jesus is a divine plan of sovereign suffering. Nothing was going to thwart God's plan to see his redemptive purposes come to fruition. You weren't going to stop Jesus. You weren't going to stop God. However, God's sovereignty does not get Judas off the hook for his sin. In this passage leading up to the details of the Lord's table, we see God is sovereign while Judas is still responsible. One commentator said, we see in this passage a, a sovereign plan and a responsible man. And, and the Reformed commentator said this, the Bible affirms two truths side by side. It's walking a tightrope. My friend and Pastor Rick Gamash gave us this analogy, and I've loved it ever since. The sovereignty of God and the free will of man is like walking on a tightrope. We've got to walk on that well. 
Don't want to tip one way or the other. And this commentator said this. The Bible affirms two truths side by side. God's plans and and humans freely, responsibly choose. The Lord's control is so perfect that he can accomplish his purposes while granting us the freedom to follow our desires and purposes. The Apostle Peter said this in the book of Acts. Something similar. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge it was determined what Jesus was going to do it was foreknown what Jesus was going to do but Peter continues you used lawless people to nail him to the cross and kill him God is sovereign over his redemptive plan and Judas is responsible for his sin so that's that's what comes right before Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper I want to show you one more contextual point before dialing into verses 26 to 29. As we have seen, one of the bookends is the betrayal of Judas. The other bookend is the denial of Peter. We didn't read it, but it comes right after the passage. The placement of Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial is significant in this way. It is obvious that Jesus' enemies would come after him, right? People don't like what Jesus was doing or what he was saying, so... He create, enemies were created, and they were going to come after him. That's the obvious. But his friends also walked away from Jesus when it seemed Jesus needed them the most. What does this tell us about Jesus and the Lord's table? The love of Jesus is greater than Peter's denial. Jesus' love is greater than your sin. The love of Jesus was not going to detour God from redeeming the souls of many. Verse 28. Consider what this means for you. Your sin, past, present, future, is not a barrier for God's love for you. Remember this when you come to the Lord's table. Something weighing you down. Perpetual sin you can't get over. If by faith God has set his hand upon you, his love is greater than that. Now let's talk about, talk more about the sacrament of the Lord's table. Now here's verses 26 to 29 one more, one more time. This is where we will be spending the remainder of this message. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. That's what Luther wrote on the table in chalk. And he took the cup in which he had given thanks. He gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the, forg- of, the, of the covenant, excuse me, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, I tell you, I will not drink of it again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Now it's helpful to keep in mind that the first communion celebration took place during the Passover. So in verses 17 to 19 of our passage, Matthew mentions Passover three times. 
He's trying to get us attention about this celebration that's taking place when this communion table is being set. Understanding the Passover from the Old Testament helps us to understand what Jesus was making, what he was doing, and the massive statement that he was trying to make with his disciples. The Passover, just quickly, is a sacred holiday in Judaism that commemorates the climactic 10th plague in the book of Exodus when Yahweh punishes Egypt by killing all the firstborn, but he passes over the firstborn of Israel. This results in the Israelites' deliverance from slavery in Egypt. They were, they were in Egypt, they were in slavery, God's getting them out. And so they celebrate the Passover. God passed over homes that had sacrificed a lamb with the blood of the lamb put on the doorframe. Read all that in Exodus. Since God delivered his people from Egypt, the Passover has continued to be a had continued to be celebrated annually by slaughtering a lamb. Now, there are other sacrificial practices in the Old Testament, but this one is significant. The ongoing practice of the Passover went down like this. Like I said, it began with the lamb that was slain, and it was prepared to eat by the priests. The family then purchased the lamb and prepared the rest of the meal. The meal also included four cups of wine, I think Lord's Supper, to share with greens and like bitter herbs. The head of the house then led the rest of the family and gave thanks to God for delivering Israel out of Egypt. During the meal, a boy was chosen to explain what the meal symbolized, and then the head of the family concluded by describing how the meal was connected to God's redemptive plan. Now, we haven't gone through the passage, but hopefully you can see what Jesus is doing here. The annual, sa- annual sacrifice of the lamb was also a means for Israel to be forgiven of their sin. And now, here is how it connects with the Lord's table. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is called the Lamb of God. John 1, verse 29. And in the book of Hebrews, we read this. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of, here's that word again, many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly waiting for him. When Jesus broke the bread, and drank the cup during the Passover. He was saying and doing something radical. He was declaring that the days of sacrificing a lamb was coming to an end because he would become the ultimate lamb sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 5 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now the disciples did not quite know at the time, but Jesus was sending a strong message. He was foreshadowing what was going to happen. Jesus was showing how the Lord's table included several symbols that point toward his death. Just like the Jews celebrated the Passover, going back, looking back at Exodus 12 and the Passover event that took place, now Jesus was saying, well, I'm changing the arrangements a little bit here. 
because something greater is going on. God's redemptive plan is not over. Let's look a bit deeper at what Jesus says about the bread and cup. At the first communion table, Jesus broke the bread because he knew his body needed to be whipped. Jesus knew his body needed to be scourged. He knew it needed to be afflicted and broken at the cross. Jesus underwent the most horrific injustice this world has ever witnessed. When we come to the table preparing to eat the bread, we remember what Christ did on our behalf. Jesus says about taking the cup, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We celebrate the Lord's table not only to remember what Christ has done at the cross, but to acknowledge this new covenant. Christ's sacrificial death has established the new covenant. The cup is a symbol of the new covenant. The new covenant, through the atoning blood of Jesus, is how you and I, Christian, have been forgiven. I also want you to see from verse 28 that Christ's death, and I've already kind of hinted to it already, is for many. Now, I always want to be careful not to build a theological argument on only one word, but the word many helps us to see the broader theological idea that Christ's atoning death is for his elect people. In our Reformed theological world, we call this limited atonement or definite atonement, meaning Christ died for the sins of the elect. If God has chosen you, you come to this table, you come humbly and with thankfulness because God set his electing love upon you, Christian. You are a part of the many who have been forgiven of sin. Let's dial in for a moment into this idea that the many are to be thankful for what God has done for us through Christ. Before distributing the wine, Jesus gave thanks to God, verse 27. Uh, These five words in the English, when he had given thanks, are actually only one word in the Greek, the Greek word being eucharistias. If you grew up Catholic or or Lutheran, you, you may have heard the word there, eucharist. It merely means thankful or thankfulness or thanksgiving. If someone were to ask you, what is your attitude toward the Lord's Supper? Here's a great answer. It's thankfulness. Listen, we live in a world which often expresses its lack of thankfulness. We hear more about what people are unthankful for than what they are thankful for. When we come to the Lord's table, in a few minutes when we come to this table, we need to fight to be thankful to God. We want to approach the Lord's table with the right attitude. And having the right attitude actually leads me to 1 Corinthians 11 when Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, this is strong, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. This is what unthankfulness looks like. 
participating in the Lord's table is a privilege. It's an absolute privilege. Because it is a privilege, coming to the table in an unworthy manner is like cursing what is going on. Now here is the prescription to the potential problem. Paul says in the next verse in 1 Corinthians, let a person examine himself or herself, then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. When we come to the table, we are not only checking our bad attitude at the door and pressing into thankfulness, but we need to examine ourselves. We look and then confess our sin and confess our great need for the transformative power of Jesus to change our heart. I want you to see from God's word, especially from what we read in 1 Corinthians 11, that Christians are active every time they come to the table to celebrate. We're active. Now, I get when you do something week in and week out, it can become rote, right? Mechanical. I totally get that. Um, even just showing up to church can be that. It's rote, it's mechanical. You do it every Sunday. You just go, you just go, you just go. And all of a sudden, you could be like, why are we doing this in the first place? And that's especially the case with the Lord's table. Now, I, I say this because I just simply don't want to ignore the obvious. With this said, we can push back against this temptation by refocusing our gaze upon Christ. We can push back against the temptation to be mechanical on a Sunday morning and when we come to the Lord's table by setting our gaze upon all that Christ has done for us. We need to remember. Now, there are two additional manners that we need to look at from verses 26 to 29. If you recall my opening story, I haven't explained the details of the controversy between, you know, this Catholic Church thing going on, Martin Luther, and then the other goat, you know, Ulrich Zwingli, and all our friends that were hanging out with him. Never really explained the details. But now, here are the words where the debate is centered upon. In verse 26 and in verse 28, Jesus says, This is my body and this is my blood. Here is the question. Here's the question that stirs the debate. What does Jesus mean when he says, this is my body and this is my blood? And I'll point out the text that Ryan Anderson gave from John 6, which is even more graphic about what Jesus was trying to communicate regarding the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm not going to get lost in the theological nuances, but I, but I need to say I do not entirely agree with the Catholic Church and wait for it. I don't entirely agree with Martin Luther or Ulrich Zwingli on where they ultimately land and how we are to understand the bread and cup. However, I do want to explain these views because we do live in a culture where you know, multiple denominations and churches exist. If you're anything like me, you grew up Catholic, and what you, what you were told then is different from what you believe now, Right? So what's going on? Where are the differences lie? Sometimes the differences can help us understand what we truly believe, and more importantly, what Scripture tells us. So I'm not, I'm not throwing stones. It's not what I'm doing here. 
I just want us to understand well what God's word is telling us this morning regarding the Lord's table. Here are four differing views on the Lord's table. There are more. The Catholic Church believes the bread becomes the literal body of Jesus and the wine becomes the literal blood of Jesus. Here's, a, here's my best attempt to humbly respond to the Catholic Church's teachings on the Lord's table. There's nothing in the Bible that suggests that when you eat the bread and drink the cup that we are to cannibalize Christ. After all, when Jesus was telling this to his disciples, he was standing right in front of them. But Pastor Sean, Jesus said, this is my body. And to which I would Respond, Jesus said that he is a door, John 10. I think we would all agree that Jesus was never a physical door. He was employing a figurative language to make a point. Jesus also calls himself a shepherd in John 10. However, there is no evidence that Jesus was ever a shepherd of actual sheep, likely a carpenter. Again, Jesus is using figurative language to make a point. Here's one more example. Several times in the New Testament, Jesus is said to be a cornerstone. A cornerstone. Was he a literal cornerstone? Of course not. In my view, the Catholic position betrays fundamental principles of biblical interpretation to create a false theology of the Lord's table. Now, there's a lot more in that debate, I grant. There's a ton if you have questions about that, I would love to talk to you later about it. Um, but for the sake of time, that's a synopsis. So what about Martin Luther? Now, over the, over the years I've preached, um, there are not many people I've quoted more than Martin Luther. Like, he's up there, and he's in the top three. So I got massive respect for Martin Luther. Massive respect. Back in Galatians 2, I was quoting Martin Luther like every, every sermon twice because of what his view on justification by faith Love Martin Luther. Well, I think Luther gets it wrong in this topic. He slightly pivots away from the Catholics, but still maintains in his own way that the body and blood of Jesus are physically present in the bread and wine. He's not interpreting the key passages, like the one we read in Matthew 26, as a figure of speech. Again, ton of respect for him. And I can't wait to meet him in heaven. And maybe we get to debate that together in heaven. That'd be great. But as it stands now, I just can't get there when I read God's word. My other friend, less known but very significant, Ulrich Zwingli, Swiss reformer, great guy. This is the third view. He had the third view called the memorial view. Uh, the principal person is Zwingli, and he held to this view. That's what he was debating Luther on. I, I do think he reacted too much against the Catholic Church, where he said the bread and cup was simply a memorial. Just think like a statue that you see. It's just a memorial. It's a memorial of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. A lot of churches in America, evangelical churches in America, hold this view. A lot of good friends of mine hold this view. I love them. I respect them. I can worship with them, and we can debate it too together. We can debate this together. But in my opinion, the Holy Spirit is doing much more than simply causing us to memorialize or remember 
what Christ has done for us. There's more going on. So, what is my view? And I don't hold this view alone. But here's my perspective. If the Lord's table is a means of grace for the church, then it is a means of grace because the Holy Spirit is at work when we celebrate the Lord's table. God, the Holy Spirit, is at work. Now, my, my memorial friends, they would say, yes, the Holy Spirit's at work, but here would be my one pushback. Then you need to tell people that. The Holy Spirit is at work when we come to this table. One more reformer, and uh, another one of my top three quotes here. Here's uh, John Calvin. He said this, It seems to me that a simple and proper definition would be to say that the Lord's table is an outward sign by which the Lord seals on our consciousness the promises of his good will toward us to sustain the weakness of our faith. And we in turn attest our piety toward him in the presence of the Lord. And then a few lines later, Calvin continues, here's another briefer definition. Thank you, Calvin. One may call it a testimony of divine grace toward us, confirmed by an outward sign with mutual attestation of our piety toward him. All of this means is that when we come to the Lord's table, we are remembering, but we are actually doing more than remembering. As I already said, we examine ourselves. 1 Corinthians 11 We confess our sin. We confess our need for more of Jesus when we come to the Lord's table. The Holy Spirit is actively at work in you, Christian. He's at work in you. God's grace is at work in you when we partake in these Elements. So it's an opportunity. It's a means of grace. It's an opportunity to receive a means of grace. But I also think this is a holy moment as well. There's one more truth we need to acknowledge every time we celebrate communion. We get it right from our text. We read in verse 29 that Jesus will not drink the fruit of the vine until he drinks it with his disciples in the Father's kingdom. Verse 29 is a remarkable statement about what is to come. It is a... It's like, we just got done thinking about what he has done. Think Passover. Talked about what God is continuing to do. Even today, as we celebrate communion... And this is also what God is going to do and establish. It's a remarkable statement. There is a future table that all Christians look forward to. It is a table where the focus will not be as much on remembering, but it will be an all-out celebration. Why? Because we will be with Jesus. Revelation 19. This is great. 
Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It's you. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Think about that. There's a day where we get to celebrate with Jesus. We will eat, we will drink, we will rejoice. No more, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more suffering. What a day. There will be a day when all the saints in this room, along with all the saints throughout history, will gather around this great banquet table with Jesus. And on that day, we will eat and drink with our Savior. On that day, we will rejoice because of our Savior. We will celebrate our Savior. It will be a day when God's redemptive plan will be complete. Be complete. Therefore, when we come to the table, we remember, we absolutely remember, there is a sense we memorialize what Christ has done. We do remember. We also receive all the grace that God has for us as we examine our heart. And we look forward to the day when we will celebrate in the presence of Jesus. So what are the ecclesiastical effects, the church effects of everything I've said about the Lord's table. In other words, in light of what I've said, what does it mean for how we participate in communion at Redemption Hill Church? I have several thoughts to close. Every week, I say that we allow for open communion at Redemption Hill Church. What this means is that if you have been given faith and know Jesus is the Son of God who died to forgive you of your sins, if you know that the blood of Jesus has redeemed you, then you are invited to celebrate communion with this local body. If you're coming from the outside and you're just hanging out with us for a Sunday, if you believe that, celebrate with us. The implication is undeniable. Only Christians should participate in the Lord's table. Another effect of the Lord's table is that when we participate, we are demonstrating our ongoing communion with one another. And in particular, we demonstrate fellowship with each other in this local church. As one body, which is made up of many people, Celebrating communion week in and week out is a demonstration of our unity as a local church which is founded upon Christ. Communion is not to be celebrated alone. I'm not going to take this home later and be like, I'm going to celebrate communion with Sean and John. No. We do that here together in unity as a church. Last, celebrating the Lord's table all about Jesus. You know, it seems like stating the obvious, but I pray the obvious never gets old. When we celebrate 
communion. When we come to the Lord's table, it is all about our Savior. Let's pray.